You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. And welcome to Knowing Faith. My name is Kyle Worley, and I'm here with my co-host, JT English. Hey. And Jen Wilkin. Hey. Who just almost, you just almost missed this episode. He's a nail-biter. You were flying in under the radar, but we're glad that you're here. Uh, Hey, listen, if you're jumping in to this, uh, to this YouTube stream of Knowing Faith, uh, well then, welcome. We're really glad you're here. And uh, this is kind of fun. We get to do a Q&A episode. We love doing the Q&A episodes, and you guys have submitted so many good questions. And a lot of the questions that we got last week, we weren't able to get to, so we were able to bring some of those in from last week to address them tonight. And then a lot of you submitted new questions. And as you're watching this, you may feel like, well, I didn't get a chance to submit a question. It's not too late. You can throw it into the YouTube chat feature, which is evidently it exists. And uh, you can find it somewhere on the YouTube channel. I don't know. Sometimes you have to refresh your page is what I've been told. You have to refresh your page once the stream starts and then the chat will show up. Anyways, you can chat. You can send a question into the chat box and then producer Ryan, she'll grab that question and then she sends them to us. And so if you've got a question, uh, we'll be taking some live questions as well. And we would be glad to get a question from you. Uh, And so JT, Jen, what have you guys been up to today? What's been going on in quarantine life? I worked all day. Wow. Just working. Not very, not very fun. I mean, it was, you know, purposeful, but it was all meetings all day. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot. Tuesday's meeting day for us. Big meeting day. Um, uh, I feel pretty zoomed out at this point. I got to be honest with you. Zoom, like, I I don't know if I said this last week. I said it somewhere. Like when we first started working on Zoom, I was like, this is God's greatest gift to humanity. I could stay in my pajamas and drink my own coffee and hang out with my kids and be on Zoom calls all day. And after two or three days of Zoom calls, it was like, this is, this is how we die. This is going to be the the end of civilization. Yeah. I'm like, just call me on the phone. We don't have I don't want to see you and let's get it done in half the time. Yeah. Um, tonight my, so we've been trying to like teach my daughter how to pray mm-hmm. and at dinner tonight we were praying uh, or we said, Lydia, do you want to pray? And she was like, yeah, I want to pray. And so when we started praying, she was like, God, thank you for food. Um, also um, God, thank you that every night from now on we get to play board games um, after dinner from dinner time until I fall asleep and God, I'm just so grateful my parents are going to do that with me. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I cannot – like, she was like, name it and claim it. She just was, like, preaching to us through her prayer. Uh, and uh, a couple of days ago, another thing that she said was uh, – I finished up my day. And I said, I'm done with work. And she said, no more video calls. <laughs> I was like, that's true. It's true. Quite a, quite a few video calls right now. Um yeah, but I, I am, I am, I have not mastered whatever skill set requires you to be as efficient at home as you were, like not at home, not even close. I've read a lot of blog articles that have been like, here, you're like, you know, you should be getting more done than ever, and I was like, who is writing? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who's getting nothing done other than writing blog articles about getting stuff done. Yeah. Um, a lot like, of I feel like. I, I know this sounds weird because, like, this situation stinks. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not, like, if your health hasn't been impacted yet or your community, like, it still it gets stinks. So you would think that the days would be long. 
my experience is the day is flying by. Like, I feel like I wake up, I get, again, I'm just kind of trying to do my job and maintain the kids and maybe go on one walk and then it's bedtime. And it feels like it's like a two hour day, but you would think that it would feel longer. Have you guys felt that? Oh yeah. No, it feels like it does not, it does not feel long. It's like it's lunch and then you put lunch away and then it's dinner and then, and then, and you haven't, you, I, I'm not getting anything done that I, and I've got a lot to get done right now. Well, the eating definitely does run together, but that's mainly because I'm eating all day long. <laughs> well, you've got a, you've got a semi-professional baker in your house just churning out hits. I know. Well, I'm like, Hey, we're not made of flour around here. I hope you're like thinking of you taking your opportunities with care. Cause I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't find, find flour anywhere. No, I, I've got a flower hookup. I got a flower guy. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know what I have, right? What? Did I tell you She's guys? She's in Denton. Don't ask her. I have a, I have a thousand beverage napkins left over from my daughter's wedding. <laughs> you know what that is? Neatly folded toilet paper. Yeah, that's cash. <laughs> cash money is what that is. Uh, it's gold. Well, um, hey, we're, we're glad that you've jumped into this. If you're just jumping on the broadcast, if you came in a few minutes after we started, then welcome to Knowing Faith. This, as weird as it sounds, this is our last episode for this season. It's crazy. This is a season finale. So because we're recording it live like this, it actually, this episode won't release on the podcast feed until like the end of May. So we're technically, you're watching the season finale, but there will still be, there's still like eight episodes that you have not heard of Knowing Faith that are going to be coming out over the next few weeks. So uh, call it the season finale. It sets the bar like way higher than it should be. It sounds like there's going to be like a big cliffhanger at the end or like somebody dies. Well, the cliffhanger well, you never is know what's going to happen. The cliffhanger is, will JT make it to Colorado? Will he survive the Oregon Trail or will he get dysentery and a busted wagon wheel? There is no way to know. I mean, I'm, I'm serving as my own barber over here, so this could get ugly, people. <laughs> well, we, well, we've got some good questions, and you, a lot of you are already submitting questions uh, uh, through the YouTube chat. So we're going to get into these questions right now. As always, we can't promise you we're going to hit all the questions, and we can't promise you that we will hit any of them in a satisfying manner. The one thing that you can almost guarantee from a Knowing Faith Q&A is that we will get caught up in one or two of these questions. And uh, things rolling. Yeah, yeah, and Jen will try to push through, and we'll end up spending 30 seconds on three of the most meaningful questions ever asked in church history. So um, <laughs> let's start with Courtney from Titter Twitter. Oh, my God. Boy, right out the gate. Woo! And it's live. <laughs> I cannot believe that just happened. Oh, I, am I red? Oh, gosh. Okay. Courtney. Wait, I missed it. What did you say? No, nah, I'm not going to do it again, bro. I'm um, not going to do it again. All right. From Courtney, she asked this question How did you or have you explained the Trinity or other theological concepts to your kids? So, how do you talk about? theological concepts with your kids and let's use the Trinity as an example. So how do you do it? Jen, this one's you. Oh, heck no. You go first. Talk about <laughs> the Trinity and then I'll come up with something else. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of talking about theological concepts to kids, you have, like, it's really important. You have to like one of the reasons kids leave the faith is because we never gave it to them in the first place. And so we don't want to inundate them and like, just crush them with doctrine or something like that. But like, I don't know how you can meaningfully talk about God to an 80 year old or an eight year old without talking about who God is and God is Trinity. He's father, son, and spirit. 
one God and three distinct persons. Does yeah. it mean they have to understand Nicaea and the hypostatic union? No, but, but the same way, and Jen, here's where I think you can really contribute more than I can to this conversation, is we're giving them language and categories when they're kids more than we're giving them understanding. You're just starting to build some muscle instincts and reflexes in them the same way they understand that two plus two equals four, but they probably hasn't, haven't fully grasped that concept until they have $2 and then get two more dollars and realize they have four. And like, oh, this is, I have $4 now. But you teach them two plus two before they know the meaning of two plus two. The same thing true, is true with doctrine, I think, is, is you're trying to say it in ways that it is accessible and that they can grasp, words they can grasp, but you should not expect them to understand the full meaning of it the same way that we don't either. And yeah, and, and I think it's important to think in terms of developmental appropriateness. I think one of the doctrines that we often try to instill the earliest in our children is the doctrine of sin. And um, we are so concerned that our children understand um, that they are sinners in need of a savior, that we can begin talking to them about that in ways that are not developmentally appropriate. So, um, for example, if you say to a child, you have a wicked, dirty heart, um, there's a lot of phrasing going on there that to a very small child sounds a lot like, am I Maleficent from a, you know, am I the, am I the villain in a Disney Hang movie? on, can you define that? Uh, Maleficent? <laughs> um, you're hilarious. Okay, is that the way it's going to be tonight, guys? <laughs> I'll say in dirty words, JT's policy. I cannot believe I did. I mean, right out the gate. I mean, I'm mortified. Back to the children, guys. <laughs> when you're talking to your children about something like sin, um, be careful that you aren't in such a hurry to communicate the truth to them that you're not communicating the truth with a parental care, with a, with a nurturing care for them. So um, it's one thing to say people have wicked, dirty hearts. It's another thing to say you have a wicked and dirty heart to a child. Children are often able to process things better if they understand, oh, this is something we all uh, are dealing with versus um, maybe having a mistaken idea that you've singled them out from all other children to tell them that they have a wicked and dirty heart. Um, and so when you can speak in just generalities about um, people and how people relate to God, um, then not only are you helping the child developmentally, but you're also um, having a conversation that isn't dependent on diagnosing whether a child is or isn't saved. Um, you can talk about it in a general sense that the child's taking in the idea and has time to think it through. Um, the, I think the most important thing to remember when thinking about talking to children about doctrine is it's not going to be one conversation. It's going right. to be multiple conversations across years that develop as their understanding develops, so not to hurry it. Yeah, I think it's really helpful. I mean, if I if I asked my daughter like, "Hey, Lydia, who is God?" she could she would say, "God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit." But if I asked her like, "What like talk to me more about that?" like that's all she knows. She, she, she can do it because we've done it over and over again as we put it on our pajamas. Lydia, tell me who God is, and then we walk through who are you, and like we just ask some basic questions. And one of the honestly one of the most helpful tools that we have found in recent days has been the New City Catechism for Kids. We've loved using outside of the Jesus story of the Bible and reading the Bible and just telling Bible stories to her. The New City Catechism has been the most helpful thing and they have songs that accompany it, which makes it even better for, for like kids. So, um, okay, uh, great start. From Nate, is it possible that the original ending to Mark's gospel was lost? Is it consistent to hold this view 
as well as the inerrancy of scripture. I'll kick us off into this one. Is it possible that the original ending of Mark's gospel was lost? Yes, it is possible. It's possible that the earliest manuscripts didn't have it. Um, it's possible that there were manuscript copies that did have it that were lost somewhere in transmission. It's possible that there were collections of manuscripts that did have it and collections of manuscripts that didn't have it. There's a lot of possibility with where the ending of Mark's gospel is. Uh, one of the reasons why, if you're not familiar with this, Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, the last 11 verses, I guess, Mark 16, 9 through 20, um, those verses are not in the earliest manuscripts. And most translations of the Bible will have some sort of editorial note or brackets that indicate that. Um, and uh, they're, what they're trying to signal to you, the reason why that's a, an important thing is because some translations of the Bible use a different manuscript philosophy than others. So uh, Bibles are, uh, you know, like the Bible wasn't given to us like this. It was a collection of manuscripts, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that then was, was uh, kind of articulated or received as canon uh, by the early church. And the New Testament, these writings would have been, there would have been original manuscripts that would have accompanied them. Many of them would have been transcribed orally or would have been the transcription of oral traditions collected together, bound together, and then kind of articulated as a book. Uh, and Mark's gospel, the last part of Mark's gospel, the last 11 verses, uh, it's, it's suspect because it, we don't have early manuscripts that demonstrate that part of Mark's gospel being in there. So some translations of the Bible take a uh, place a higher value on earlier manuscripts being the idea of like if there was an earlier manuscript then it was closer to the date of authorship whereas other translations of the bible will say well the majority of manuscripts are reflective of what we should take as a translation that's like the king james version which is sometimes called majority text uh, so anyways that's a few kind of context clues but it's very possible that a lot of things could have happened in the end of mark's gospel uh but is it consistent to hold this view as well as the inerrancy of scripture it is because I hold to both of those things. So it is consistent. Consistent on everything. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think it's inconsistent to say, wow, there could be a portion of the end of Mark that we don't have. Um, and yet scripture is inerrant because I receive a scripture with the canon articulates. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I'd add a lot more to that. I think it's really good, Kyle. The person did say they were hoping it would drum up more conversation between us about what should be in the canon or shouldn't be in the canon. Oh, my gosh. Uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like, I don't know if you guys saw a few weeks ago, the Pope said in the middle of quarantine, the Pope said that if you can no longer confess to a priest, that you can just confess to God yourself. So that's one point for the Reformation and Protestants. I'm just waiting for Kyle and his Catholic understanding of inspiration in the, in the biblical text to join the Protestants for point number two. It's really up to you, Kyle. It's just a matter of what you think the text is. Does the church speak first or does God speak first? Your call. Yeah, man, I'm honestly, JT, I'm not going to take the bait, but I am going to tell Nate uh, uh, that keep in mind that the New Testament is the well, most well-attested ancient document. Um, and uh, Except for Third Corinthians. It's incredibly well-attested uh, from a manuscript ba basis and um, I, you shouldn't be troubled. If anything, when we find these editorial notes in the Bible, it should be a reflection to us of the integrity of those who translate the Word of God and their true desire to reflect what we have on the basis of the information and evidence that we have, which I think is a really good sign. Um, from Alex on Twitter, my small group is reading Delighting in the Trinity right now. It's brought up some questions about angels and their place in relation to the Trinity 
and humanity. Um, so what is their relationship and how does free will work for angels? So Delighting in the Trinity, we are very much in favor of. That is a fantastic book. Good for you and your group for reading it. Questions about angels and their place in relation to the Trinity and humanity. Jump in, y'all. You want to start, JT? I mean, uh, yeah, where I would start is saying that, that there is a huge distinction between the Trinity and angels. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are, is the only essence, the only thing that is uncreated. Everything else is created, whether it's angels or people who are image bearers or any spiritual powers, whether they be angelic or demonic. And so angels are created the same way that you are. They're not created as divine image bearers like humanity is. Uh, I'm not sure I've given a lot of thought to their freedom of the will. You would have to say that there is free will given that angels have fallen, but I don't know that I've thought about it much past, past that. Jen? Yeah, so I think that is a, a distinction that's there is that they seem to be created with free will, uh, but what they are not um, granted is any path to redemption. Right. Uh, and so, because we don't, you know, you don't hear any stories of like this angel fell and then was restored. Um, and so uh, you may be familiar with the passage in First Peter where it speaks of the things of the gospel as things into which angels long to look. And um, commentators will reflect, scholars will reflect that um, the angels are, um, are um, not bewildered, but are uh, unable to enter into fully the joy of salvation in the way that we do because they have no firsthand experience of redemption. Um, they are either angels who have been uh, in faithful service to God or who have turned from God, but there is no return path for them. Uh, and so uh, in that way, you can, you can see that um, what we have is a really, really special thing to be both image bearers and the, the recipients of um, redeeming grace in a way that the angelic beings are not. Which then you think about like how there have been times, um, and even the Bible speaks to this, where people have given worship to angels. Um, and when you reflect on the fact that they're finite, uh, created beings, and, um, and that in fact, um, their, their relation to um, God and to us is such that we, we might not even be enviable of, of their relationship. Yeah, I think that's all really good. I think that it is pivotal to understand that even other spiritual beings outside of God are created. It can be very easy for us to think that since they're not human, we think creaturely maybe like material, but they are created even though they may not have the same form that we do as creaturely beings. Um, and it's important that we remember that even if they have agency or freedom, they don't possess what we might call radical freedom, meaning that like they, their freedom doesn't mean that they can do whatever, whenever, however they want to. They still exist within God's world. Like they are created and by virtue of that, they are qualitatively distinct uh, from the creator God. There is, if you're um, if you're paying attention to some kind of online content providers when it comes to Christian content, there is like a, there's been some, a recent conversation. Oh, that was a notification. There's been a recent conversation about, uh, uh, about uh, divine counsel and what the relationship of angels and demons are to God. And it is a very interesting thing to be following along with, but I think that what you have to preserve and what cannot be lost 
in any meaningful sense is that Yahweh God is qualitatively distinct in every way um, from creaturely things. And I think that's a very important thing to remember. Uh, that's one of those areas where you just go like, it's an essential. If you lost the distinction between creator and creature, you're going to fall down a, a pretty big, a pretty big hole. Yeah. Uh, and the bottom will be heterodox. So, uh, Courtney on Instagram asked, why did John the Baptist still have his own disciples after Jesus came on the scene? This why? is my favorite kind of question. These are the kinds of questions where you're like, can I even ask this? Uh, <laughs> It's a really good one because uh, I think it's something that a lot of people probably wonder about, but not everybody is willing to raise their hand in class. So way to go, Courtney. Um, so uh, we know in the Gospels that Jesus actually only had a limited number that he called his disciples. He had 12. And uh, when John the Baptist um, precedes him, he would have had these students who were following him essentially as a rabbi. Is that the way you would say it, JT and Kyle? Yeah. Uh, and so you would not necessarily expect that just because Jesus arrives on the scene that they would cease their relationship with um, the one that they were going to for their training and for their formation. Um, and, and, and in fact, there, was, there just weren't a limited, an unlimited number of opportunities to sit at the feet of any given rabbi. So Jesus calls his particular 12. And um, if you weren't one of those, then you would, you would be with whoever you found to, to be your primary teacher. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And it wasn't just that Jewish rabbis had disciples. Socrates had disciples. Yeah. And Plato had disciples. And Aristotle had disciples. And every rabbi and every teacher. I mean, to be a disciple, like the term, we can tend to hear it just in kind of its biblical context, which is not wrong. But to give it a broader picture of it just meant to be a student of somebody. Yeah. It just meant to be a learner of somebody that I follow Jesus. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow John the Baptist. I follow Socrates. And so uh, it wasn't that these two schools are in opposition to each other. It's that John the Baptist was worth learning things from. Yeah. And to be a disciple of John the Baptist didn't mean, necessarily mean to not be also a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. It just meant I'm following John's way of thinking about the world, which was in line with Jesus's way of thinking about the world. Yeah, it's capturing the apostolic witness with imitate me as I imitate Christ. Like it's that kind of idea of like, follow me and you'll end up following Jesus as well. So it, we don't have to see it as like, it certainly wasn't competitive between John the Baptist's disciples, even though we do see some exchange where they're kind of trying to investigate and kind of figure out like, is this really, like, is this the real deal, right? I mean, you see that where, uh, what is it? John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus as disciples, right? They come to Jesus and they're like, hey, who are you? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. And Jesus tells them, like, this is who I am. I'm the one who's healing and the blind are seeing and the deaf are hearing and the lame are being made well. And like, they're, they're like, okay, great. And they go back to John the Baptist to bring the report. Like, okay, looks like this is who we thought he was. He's the Messiah. Anything else to add on that, Jen? It can be confusing because now we would say, we're all disciples of Jesus in some sense. Yeah. So you do have to take into account that uh, at the, when you're reading the Gospels, they're, they're talking about a unique time in history, right? Where you could actually, there were these 12 guys who were physical disciples of, of Jesus. Um, and so I think that's sometimes why it can be kind of a question. Also, you just think, well, if John the Baptist was pointing toward Jesus, then when Jesus showed up, didn't everybody just become a disciple of Jesus? Yeah. And so that term disciple, meaning a specific thing in that context is important to. Yeah. 
Um, this is from Crossing Jordan on Instagram. How do you start biblical education in your church when your pastor doesn't have a vision for it? So we'll take this as like adult education, like Bible studies, Bible classes, some of the stuff they hear us talk about uh, at, uh, on the podcast. That's what she's, that's, uh, that's what Crossing Jordan, so I don't know who it is, but Crossing Jordan's talking about. Um, I'd probably just start with making sure like, have you, as a pastor, there's a lot of things that like I don't get to talk about because I'm talking about a lot of other things. I would just make sure like if I was this pastor, I'd be like, please come talk to me about this. <laughs> make sure I don't have a vision for it. Uh, and I, because it would be really, I'd, I'd honestly, like if, if this was somebody in my church right now, I'd be like, oh, I'd tell me. Like I want to know. And maybe like if the vision was like a clown ministry, I'd be like, yeah, I don't have a vision for a clown ministry. You know, I run it already. If you're in clown ministry, like bless you, but like we just that's not gonna be a part of what Mosaic's up to, okay? But so if your idea was clown ministry, but if it was like Bible study and Bible classes, then I'd be like, Well, I want to hear about that. So I'm presuming that you've talked to your pastor and your pastor is like, No, we're not doing Bible classes. Email tomorrow from somebody who said, Hey, I anonymously asked you guys a question on Instagram. My name's Crossing Jordan, but I'm actually at Mosaic. <laughs> that would break my I would be like it would break my heart and I'd be like, have you not read any, like, have you <laughs> seen any newsletters? Um, but I, so I would say start, start like if you haven't, talk with your pastor, even if you don't think he has a vision for it, even if he said that he, you know, even if he made fun of a Bible study one time, talk to your pastor because you may want to see it happen. Um, and then beyond that, I would, Jen's advice, and I'll let Jen give it, it's her advice. What do you tell people when they're like, I want to study the Bible, but. Yeah, I, I say, oh no, you shouldn't do that if your pastor says no. No, I don't. <laughs> Um, I think a lot of times what is very common is that um, sometimes this is seen as competing with other environments instead of um, undergirding them. So I do think Kyle has a good point of like make, make your case of how what you want to do is actually undergirding the greater mission of the church if it has mm -hmm. for some reason been perceived to be in opposition with it. But frankly, sometimes you still won't be heard. And at that point, um, you can just respectfully say, hey, would it be okay if I gather a group of people in my home? Uh, I really would like to use this in my neighborhood as a tool to, to, to reach out to those in, in the neighborhood. And there's really just not an objection, I think, that, that could be reasonably given to, to doing that uh, in your home. And just do the, do the good work on the terms that you're able to and continue to pray that it might be something that becomes a vision uh, for your church. And, and, that you're, and sometimes what can happen, not always, but sometimes what can happen is that um, the value of it begins to grow even within the setting where you have taken the opportunity to do it. And, and then word kind of starts to circle back around that this is meaningful. And sometimes it is an open door, but sometimes it's not. And you just do it anyway, because you know that the Lord uh, has called you to do it. Yeah. And I think it also, I mean, this is more maybe political advice than, than it is like pastoral advice, but it's not uncommon for pastors. It's not that they don't have a vision for this. It's that they're super, super, super busy and they're tired, and they're trying to push 18 different things forward at the same time. And so even if your pastor has a vision for this, like we had at TBC, we had a leadership team that when we started the Institute said, we're behind you a thousand percent. It still wasn't easy. Like it was kind of slow plotting, just daily putting your hand to the grind and, and asking God to push it forward. So be don't be discouraged that if you don't see the kind of progress that you want to see, in the first six months or the first year or the first two years, don't stop. Like, even if it just means, I mean, and Jen, I just, I want to commend you. 
like when you weren't seeing the progress you wanted to see, it was like, come to my living room and I want to teach you the Bible. It's like, it's, it is. And this story isn't told enough, but Jen, your faithfulness to this vision of what God is calling people to in biblical literacy, Bible literacy in the local church is not because you have a big megaphone. You had this vision for decades before you had a megaphone. And if you're listening to this, you need to know that Jen Wilkin has taught more Bible studies to small groups in her living room than she has from platforms. And so don't wait for the platform to be faithful. Be faithful with your kids. Be faithful with your home group or your small community. And just open the Bible and and see what God has to say about it. Don't wait for a massive opening and a microphone and a platform to start moving these things forward. Yes, co-sign all that. And I think just the short of it too is like if you – like if you're in a place where – like I would understand if you're in a place where like the pastor's like, yeah, we don't want to start a Bible study right now because we've got a lot of things going on. But if you're in a place where a pastor of a church tells you to not not do a Bible study in your home, <laughs> uh, not to study the Bible, I, I'd say it may be time to just kind of like take stock of where you're at um, and just feel like – yeah. again, I wouldn't do it high-handedly or arrogantly, but I'd just say it's probably time to investigate that a little bit. Um, all right, Matthew 7, 21 through 23 from Victoria. This is in the YouTube chat. If you're just jumping onto this and you're wondering like, hey, can I ask a question? Yeah, you can throw it into the YouTube chat and then producer Ryan sends it over to us. And so this came from the YouTube chat feature from Victoria. If you're watching, hey, Victoria, uh, could you break down the false true disciples in Matthew 7, 21 through 23? How could the false disciples have the power to perform many miracles but were False. Okay, so I actually just preached uh, five sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and I spent a lot of time in this passage because this is probably if I if somebody if I had ten people lined up in front of me and they all told me they had questions about the Bible, like three or four of them have questions about this text. So a couple of notes in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is trying to commend true righteousness. That's the blessed way. Uh, That's the way of reward. So he is at pains through the Sermon on the Mount to communicate um, that this kingdom vision that he is putting forward is both faithful to the law. um, It's a faithful fulfillment of the law. And um, it is the way of true righteousness. And keep in mind, one of Jesus's primary conversation partners and who he is addressing implicitly or explicitly throughout the Sermon on the Mount are those who would seek to prop up false righteousness. And I think he actually has defined and given an example of false righteousness just a few verses before. And it's important to note that context before coming to this passage because he says about false prophets. That's what he's talking about in the verses right before this. Beware of false prophets. And what do they do? They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so essentially what he's telling you is beware. There will be people who claim a righteous standing who are going to appear to you as good faith actors, but they actually have sinister motives. Their motives are to devour and exploit. That's, I mean, that's what he's saying. So he's, he is throughout the sermon, but particularly right before he says what he says in verses 21 through 23, he is addressing false righteousness and even uh, more specifically false righteousness that devours. That's what he's talking about. Then he goes in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, when you hear this, very uh, introspective believers will often say, and it gets preached this way, which is shameful, in my opinion. But uh, you will be careful because you could be so convinced that you're a believer that you might be doing righteous things, but really, who really knows? Well, guess what? God knows because God saves people. Um, so God knows. Uh, and typically the introspective soul is not the one that this is. This passage is not directed at those who have humble heart would say, am I, am, am I actually worthy to receive salvation? These are not the people. Jesus is actually, he's arguing against false righteousness, which it empowers and devours. And so in verses 21 through 23, what Jesus is saying is no. He doesn't say you didn't do any of these things. And it doesn't say that these people were truly righteous. It just says they will come before God and they will say, did we not do all of these things in your name? Well, many people were claiming to be righteous in Jesus's day, and yet their motives, their heart, the intentions of the heart, and their, who they really were, it was, it was an illusion. It was false. It was a pretense. And so I think the key thing to understand about this passage is that Jesus is not speaking to those who are pursuing true righteousness, saying, even if you pursue true righteousness, guess what? It won't matter in the end. He's, he's speaking to those who are practitioners of false righteousness, saying, eventually, God is going to find you out. Even if you can hide it from me, even if you can hide it from everybody else, God's going to find you out. It's going to be unveiled. So that's my take on these verses. Jen? Oh, thanks for calling on me. Um, I, uh, I also think it's important to keep in, in context of the whole sermon, what he's pushing on. He is, he is reorienting his followers to um, understand that the kingdom is for the, the last and the least and the, the humble and the meek. And so when he gets this part, he's sort of built to his crescendo and notice the things that he says that they will have done are all the big flashy things. It's prophecy. It's, it's the sign gifts. Um, and yet what the passage, the sections right before this in which we find the Lord's prayer is where he, he talks about praying and giving and fasting. And he says, these are the things, you know, that you should do almost without any self-awareness that you're doing them. So he's, a, he's using hyperbole and he, as he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And he is pointing out that, you know, um, don't always think that or and, and don't think certainly that the, that the normative experience of being a member of the kingdom of heaven is that you're going to be a big deal with with big, shiny outward displays of, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, you're going to be um, poor in spirit and you're going to mourn over sin and you're going to be meek and you're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness and you are going to be merciful and you are going to be pure in heart. You, that's what's going to characterize you. Um, that's how people are going to know that you're legitimate. Um, that, that's the light that's going to shine before men. So um, the even the nature of the example that he's giving here is meant to be like, oh, you think this is what the big deal is? No, I just told you what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it's the it's the humble um, who are not self-seeking. Amen. Anything to add to that, JP? No, I don't think I'd push back. I think you're exactly right, Kyle. But I, I think I'd be like, I so I, I would probably more lean to, towards what Jen just said. Mm -hmm. I disagree with anything you said, but I think Jesus is also teaching his followers not just what they should expect of themselves, but being careful and watchful of those in the community who are claiming to be big shots yeah. and saying like, like the way we teach this in the training program is are there believers who are going to have Matthew chapter seven type gifts like prophecy and casting a demon for sure. 
Uh, there are. There's also going to be people who have those gifts or displays of signs and wonders who are not believers. Mm. There are no believers who have Galatians 5 type gifts who will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. That's that good. all believers have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and, pay, and, and continued. And that's what Jenna's just said. And so the things we pursue as believers are faith, yeah. hope, love. And that we should also expect those things. Like if somebody's prophesying or casting out demons or speaking in tongues and has not love, I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Good. Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> All the superlatives. Um, uh, if you want more on Sermon on the Mount stuff, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Human Flourishing, Jonathan Pennington, or do I know somebody that did a whole series on Sermon on the Mount and it's a curriculum? His name is Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> the first series, the first series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jen has a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which you probably already know about, but it's out there. You can find it. Um, uh, uh, Brian. Brian asked, how can one explain biblical gender roles without sounding discriminatory? Good luck, Brian. Let us know how it goes. <laughs> uh, what do you think, guys? So I think that um, there, gosh, this is such a hard question to answer because even the words biblical gender roles make me nervous. I don't know what is meant. I, I certainly assume the best of someone who's asking us a question here on the, on the podcast because you probably have heard some of our discussions around this. Um, I think that the safest route to take is to um, try to root the discussion, make an appeal to um, biological difference and to commonly observable sociological differences between men and women. Across culture and across time. Right, that are, that are culturally transcendent and that transcend any particular time. Now, that's hard. Um, and, and it's something that the three of us are really trying to, to get better at. Um, but, um, I think it's probably the only, the only way forward for the conversation at this point. Um, because if you think about it, like just within the culture at large, you have the impulse to deny any distinction between men and women. Uh, and then within the church, you have the, almost the opposite impulse, which is to make them completely distinct. Uh, and so it's very hard to have the conversation uh, within the church, and it's very hard to have it with someone outside the church. Um, and and can I just say this? I think there are way more important conversations to have before you ever start having that conversation, particularly with an unbeliever. Um, I don't think that's an entry-level conversation because, first of all, it's a secondary issue. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold.
Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Yeah, when we were trying to have this conversation at TBC, and Jen, you just kind of tipped your hat to it, is you begin thinking about, okay, so comp- if complementarianism is, is two equally important instincts of sameness and distinction, and we're emphasizing sameness, that, that men and women are image bearers, and then you start thinking about distinction because men and women are not interchangeable, the lots that they do is interchangeable. We can all love. We can all submit. We can all have authority. And then we begin asking ourselves the question across time, place, culture, socioeconomic, I mean, like social standards, what is it that makes men and women different? And we know that there are things, but role is where we got hung up is like biologically clear, clear distinction and difference. But like, we started even doing like silly, not silly. It was hard. Like, uh, taste like case studies, mm-hmm. like, if this happens and there's a man and a woman there, who does what? Who does what? And it was like, it was really hard because, well, well what if it's a child and a, and a woman? And the, like, let's just say, some, let's say uh, there's a man and a woman in a house and a robber comes in. Who goes and takes care of the robber? Well, the man. Well, but what if the man is an eight-year-old little boy and the woman is a 33-year-old mom? Because that is gender distinction. And it's not maleness and femaleness. Or what if the man... Um, is missing his legs. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, like, so it's, uh, I think that the, the reason we hesitate around this and especially like in a Q and a, it's difficult is because, uh, there's not a one size fits all answer, uh, for, for a lot of this, but the, the closest we can come to making general statements, um, would be something that's linked to, um, to our, our bio, our biological design, because that's something that's given to us by God. So, um, the, the idea that men are physically dominant um, generally, um, and that means that women uh, are understand vulnerability the entire length of their lives. I think that impacts the, the way that we inhabit the world. Um, but I can't necessarily give you a nice, short, clean answer. Still working on it. But that's part of doing theology and community. You know, we don't have punchlines for all this stuff. Kyle's our main punchline. We just punch Kyle. Yeah. Is Kyle frozen right now? If he is, he's frozen with a scowl on his face. Kyle <laughs> is totally frozen right now. He's going to have to, like, get out of the conversation and come back in. He's either frozen or he has incredible self-control. No, he's definitely frozen, which is kind of funny because I feel like we should take a screenshot of this and save it for him later. <laughs> Look at that face. 
<laughs> okay, but hey, Jen, we have some more questions, and I've got one here while Kyle tries to figure out how to get back in. Okay, great. Okay, Alan asks this on the YouTube chat. Passages about women being quiet or covering their head, as an example, he's not just using gender questions. When do we look at, at examples like this from scripture and see them from a cultural standpoint, not from a commandment standpoint? And I also want you to hit on what does it mean to have a literal versus a literate meaning of, of reading of scripture? Because I think there's another, somebody else asked that question too. Try to tie those two things. Okay, gosh, that's easy. Yeah. How to get back on here? Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of the literal versus literate, basically the point with a passage like something about head coverings is if you read it um, literally or just woodenly and you just pull it up, particularly the way that that is kind of lifted out of even the passages that it's found in, um, then you're going to be like, well, sure, then we should all cover our heads. Uh, women should, should cover their heads everywhere and at all times. Um, or you might start asking, wait a minute, was, you know, is there something bigger going on in this passage? Is there something bigger going on in this entire epistle? Um, how can I understand this within the cultural and historical context as well? Yeah. Uh, hey! Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, where did you, like, I just literally disappeared. <laughs> your, your screen froze with a perfect Kyle scowl. You're just frozen like that. It was so great. Is he frozen again? <laughs> no, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm back. You're holding still. So you've joined us just on time to talk about head coverings for women. Yeah. I decided to throw Jen a zinger in your absence. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm going to let Jen take it. Yeah. <laughs> if you're reading, if you really want to read that from a literate um, place, then you're going to try to take into account what was going on in the culture at the time, uh, what was going on, uh, what were, what was the, the status of women in, in culture, what did a head covering connote or not connote? Um, you know, there's even, there's hair length mentioned in there as well. And, um, you know, because of the angels uh, is a really weird little part in that passage. Uh, and there are a lot of different opinions on it. And so that is one, one other um, thing to keep in view is that if it is a passage that has caused a lot of discussion across many years, then you should be very um, suspect of anyone who says, well, clearly it says this. Um, because if it really was that clear, we wouldn't have as much discussion on it. But you should definitely spend some time um, trying to come up with your own position on those passages. That's right. And also just, again, fairness, Jen, that's a great answer. This is a hard question. Like, the thing that's ironic about like that question from first Corinthians and head coverings is in those verses, we'll talk about, well, this is a cultural reading and the reason this is important. And the reason, <clears throat> you know, we don't do that anymore is because it was a cultural issue, but three verses later, Paul's talking about something we take as commandment as something that is universally true in all places and all times. And so this is just one of those things that it's really good to ask these questions in community in the context of your local church and slowly I love the point you made at the end there, Jen, is on passages that are highly disputed like this, if anybody says, well, it's clear, they have not done their homework. Yeah. It's not that the Bible is not clear. It's that sometimes our understanding of the Bible is not clear. And we have to, we have to read it prayerfully, slowly, and literally. That's good. I missed the meat of that discussion, and I'm pretty bummed about it. Um, but uh... Did you just run to the bathroom real quick? No, I just was sitting here, and then everything on my, my computer screen went away. <laughs> I was like, what? Um, well, I, uh, 
be the problem too. I was surprised you were the one who got kicked out. I know. I was sure that you we were going to lose your internet connection tonight. Yeah, I feel all kinds of trouble. Uh, okay, this is from Connor on Instagram. Relationship between Calvinism and determinism. Can you hold to one without the other? Yeah, we've talked about this on a podcast before. I don't remember which one, but Calvinists, at least the ones that I know and the ones that I think are right, are it's what's called compatibilists, where we believe both in the freedom of, of human agency and humans' ability to make decisions and do things, and in God's ultimate sovereign providential rule and governance of the world. Yeah. And Calvinists, and I think Calvin himself was a compatibilist. And that does not mean that God does not determine all things he does, but it means he also does it somehow in a miraculous and unknown way, in a way that coincides with our ability to be free human agents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, cosine on that. When you're thinking about what I think would be uh, the kind of the best grid for this, it's theological compatibilism. That's what JT's talking about. Theological compatibilism, I think, is a better approach than theological determinism. But keep in mind that even in de- when you're talking about determinism, there is a difference between theological determinism and what I would say is a naturalistic or a theological determinism. One has purpose. The other one is essentially fate. Like, it's determinism without right. purpose. And so even if you're going to be a Calvinist or a Calvinistically inclined determinist you don't have to be a calvinist to be a determinist you don't have to be a determinist if you're a calvinist even if you were going to do that theological determinism is not the same thing as what is typically considered determinism in more of a philosophical category of it just being like brute facts that just happen because of some sort of mechanistic or natural order um so I, I, all that to say not all determinism is the same so even if you're thinking about determinism, I would say there are more and less viable approaches to that position from the Christian worldview uh, than, than what's typically on offer. Um, so, um, okay, a couple other questions here. We're getting from YouTube. Uh, what is a good way, this is from Carrie. Uh, what is a good way to approach teaching Esther so it doesn't fall into a stereotypical feelings level discussion? I really want to take this one. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Jen. <laughs> Go for you, JP. <laughs> no, Jen, this is all you. This is a wheelhouse. Uh, well, um, I think first it would be good to read some of the ways that Esther has been taught to stoke your rage fires before you go to teach it yourself. Um, and then, you know, work the process, like start with, uh, the comprehension piece. Um, what is it actually saying? Um, a lot of the, a lot of the breakdown, a lot of times when someone studies Esther is just that there's such a rush to want to apply that um, really any application will do. And, and not only that, but the, it's all of these like, um, uh, what can we as women learn from the story of Esther? And it's like, well, now I don't know, like, have you actually been brought into a king's harem and placed in this position where your entire, uh, you know, nation's um, uh, lives are at stake based on your behavior? No? Okay, well, uh, go ahead and apply something anyway. So I do think that uh, there are really good things to apply from the book of Esther and a good starting point to taking it a different direction than some have would be that rather than focus um, first on Esther, focus first on God. What are you seeing is true about God in the story? And then work your way out to the way that the other characters in the narrative are um are acting either in opposition to or or in collaboration with what you're seeing 
um, the God of Israel doing. And, and that should get you down the road to a less sentimental reading of the book of Esther and also get some good commentaries. That's great. I got nothing to add on that. Um, most theologically. Okay. So this is a question I had. This isn't a question that came in. It's a question I had for you guys. We've never talked about this, but has there, uh, I was curious about what has been the like most theologically moving or spiritually moving non-literary work that you've experienced. So like something that's like not a book. We often talk about books that we're reading, but has there been like an album, a film, a painting, something that's a non-literary work, but has been spiritually or theologically moving to you? I think I've already talked about mine on here before. It's Handel's Messiah. I I could listen to it and I do listen to it just about year round. But is that theologically oriented? I guess it's not. I, I, I hear you. No, no, no. I, I, she thought you were trying to troll her right there, JT. No, I'm really not. No, and I'm saying I'm like, it's Isaiah. No. Yeah, but it's not a book, though. It's more than Isaiah. Okay. I, I didn't know you were saying, okay, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's a, some sort of non literary work that's theologically or spiritually moving. Yeah, yeah that's what that is. I, heard, right? I, I thought you said like non literary, like explicitly not Christian. Oh, like, no. uh, that's what I was thinking. No. And I was like, that is Isaiah. Right. Huh? I answered right, right, Kyle? Yeah, of course. You know, I misunderstood. Okay. That's okay. on me. Yeah, Handel's Messiah is a great answer. Like, for me, it's it's probably the Lord of the Rings. Like, okay. Lord of the Rings is a non, like, it's a, well, oh, that's a literary Wait. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My wife is laughing from around the corner at how dumb that was. Um, okay, so. <laughs> Okay. Um, oh, you've had a great night tonight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's your question. It was my question, and I messed it up. Jen answered it rightly. JT misunderstood it, and then I answered it wrongly. So um, You have to wear a head covering for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> I should, probably over my face as well. No, if it's, if, uh, it's a painting. It's Christina's World, Andrew Wyeth. Oh, I love that painting. It's a cool painting. It's incredible. Okay. incredible. Have we talked about this? I don't think so. Um, the next time you're watching Forrest Gump, there's a scene where Jenny throws rocks at the house that she grew up in, and she yep. then falls down into the road, and she's gazing up at the house, and you set that side by side with your favorite painting, and you will see that they, that he is um, he's, really? he's taking that image and utilizing it in the film. That's incredible. I did not know that. Yeah. I did not know that. I've, I've, um, I've seen it, like, like uh, I guess I've been to New York three times, and each time, like, the last time I went... We were, I was on a trip there for like 36 hours one time. And I was like, the only thing I want to do in New York is go to the MoMA and see this painting. And so if I go, if I fly into New York and I'm going to be there for any length of time, the only thing on my docket of like, I have to do this in New York is I have to go there and I have to see this painting. Are you just, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jen. I was going to say, are you just a fan of uh, Andrew Wyeth? You know, the whole family painted. Did you know that? I, I do know that, but I have like I just have very little exposure to the rest of their work. I, I've seen a lot of his paintings, mostly because the DMA did like an exhibit probably seven, eight years ago, where they had a bunch of Andrew Wyeth paintings in. Yeah, um, and uh, is actually probably better known. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so well, yeah, but I have I have less exposure to anybody outside of him. So. Okay. Okay. Sorry, JT. What's your answer? Mine is you too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I could be in the con, and that is my favorite Christian song ever. Yeah, uh, they're my favorite Christian band too. I mean, Jen, you, we didn't sit together, but we went. To, we yeah. we were all at that concert at the same time. We got to see yeah. say hi to each other. 
They were here, was that like two years ago maybe? I think so. That's one of the best concerts I've gone to. It was so fun. You two, I, I love you two. It's a great they, band. You are a fan. Is there something like about DTS and you two as well? Because I feel like a lot of DTS. There is. Guys. Several of the profs there kind of ingrained it in us. Glenn Kreider and Jeff Bingham. Yeah. Because um, if you meet a DTS guy, they're like, you know, they're like dispensationalism, the Trinity, and you two. You know? <laughs> it's the big three. Um, uh, okay. Uh, I also had a question too. Something you've changed your mind on theologically. Like, has there been something that like, you know, that you're like, oh, wow. I like, I used to think like this, but then I had a change of opinion and you know, that you'd feel okay sharing. Yeah. We actually just talked about one of mine. I think when I started out in Calvinism, I had a far more deterministic view. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and the thing that moved me toward um, a position that attempts to just say, Hey, these two things are both in there. And we don't know how they work together, both in the Bible, um, the, the freedom of the will of humans and then the sovereignty of God um, was just being in the Bible more. You know, like the more that I was reading in the scriptures, the more I just, um, I think because when I first came to hear about Reformed um, doctrine, it was so new and was so not what I had grown up with that I had to just sort of go all the way over here before I could come back a little to the middle on it. Um, I think they call it cage stage Calvinism, but uh, it wasn't just that that I felt really strongly about the new things I was learning. It was that I sort of overlearned some of it, I think. For me, it was uh, limited atonement or particular redemption. Like growing up and kind of, not growing up, but getting saved in kind of a very evangelistic, mission-driven campus crusade college ministry. It was like Jesus died for everybody, so we need to tell everybody. And there's a sense in which that is absolutely still true. But as my views on the atonement grew, uh, I, I started to, to uh, hold to a more kind of reform position that saw Jesus's death as particular, as a particular redemption for his church. Uh, oh, I know another one. I now believe that dogs are going to be with us in the new heavens and the new earth. That's because it's a feelings-based discussion out of Esther, not because you believe the Bible. <laughs> Yeah, just because you want something to be true doesn't make it true. <laughs> what was yours? Moving on. Um, uh, I think probably one of the more significant ones for me really has more to do with like a theological method. Like I, uh, coming out of college, I was pretty, um, I was pretty close-fisted. Like meaning that I had a very narrow view of like what you must believe to be a Christian. It was pretty. Like I would say I, that my Sometimes I'll talk, I'll talk about like confessional core and ecumenical consciousness or like, uh, like a more broad breath. Sometimes you hear us talk about open-handed and close-handed. I had like way too many things in the close-handed, like tons. Like it, essentially if I believed it, it was in the close-handed. That is a not a good approach. Um, and it, made, it really made for a very narrow approach to thinking through the history of the church um, how to do theological engagement, what partnership looked like, who could be a member of a church. Like, I mean, it just was, it was not, it was not healthy. And that was probably the biggest change for me was, uh, what was that? Was coming back to a creedal foundation to embrace, hey, these, this is what the broad base of orthodoxy looks like. Uh, and uh, that the church has a lot of different faithful 
kind of uh, streams flowing from that. So that was the biggest thing for me. It was more of a, again, I think that's more of a theological method thing um, in terms of what is essential, what's not. But that was a huge change for me, massive. And uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so other questions. I feel, like do, uh, I feel like we should do like a lightning round. Yeah. I just don't have like a bunch of lightning round questions. These are all pretty technical questions here. Got to go for it. No nuance, Kyle. Okay. Um, uh, okay. Do you, okay. We'll do this then. What if it's do not you, lightning round? What if it's like you have a sentence? One sentence. Oh my gosh. And we're recording this live. Like, great. Yeah. Do angels get fired okay. for this? JT, uh, we'll, we'll go around Robin here. We'll start with JT. Same Lots question. Of do angels exist among us today, but we just can't see them? You have one sentence, JT. They do exist today. I think some we can't see and some we can see, period. <laughs> so JT's essentially yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> angels exist today. Yep. I think some angels are invisible or can make themselves invisible. And I think some are visible. And we see them and interact with them the way that we would interact with the person. Jen, any, you want to venture a one sentence response to this question? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> That's it? <laughs> uh, okay, so Jen, do angels exist among us today? Yep. Okay, great. Can we, can we see them? Oh, no. Okay. I'm right I, here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> worst. Um, do angels exist among us today, but we just can't see them? I would say yes, angels exist, and it's not that we can't see them, but it's that we often don't see them. That's how I would say. But can you see them? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, and for me, that's less. Of an I'm going to say it's. You're cheating. That's a lot of words. Lightning words. <laughs> um, thoughts on meshing? Golly, these are hard. I mean, these are just hard questions. Thought, uh, this is from Scott on YouTube. Sorry, Scott, for this one sentence response. Thoughts on meshing Anabaptist traditions of pacifism, non-resistance, and separation of church and state in the context of American evangelicalism. So that's you, Kyle. We J Jen and I did the other one. Uh, thoughts? Uh, thoughts on? Oh my gosh. Uh, 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 the Anabaptists have a lot to contribute when it comes to our political theology. <laughs> I mean, what do you want me to say? JT's turn. JT? Uh, yes, we should mesh parts of the Anabaptist tradition into American evangelicalism. <sighs> I, I feel like right now, Scott Davis, who, who asked this question, is literally, he's, he's rolling his eyes at us from the other <laughs> um, Hey, Jeff Metters is on here. Hey, Jeff. So, Jeff, speaking of stage cage Calvinism, go get his book, Humble Calvinism. It's out there. It's out there. It's a good book. It's really good. Um, okay. Uh, Jen, this one's for you. One sentence. Can you please talk about a literate versus literal reading of hyperbole and historical narrative? What cues can we look for to know we are reading hyperbole? How do we know when it's not? Uh, if it sounds larger than life, and give it the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think so. Oh, I'm using more words than I'm supposed to. Keep going on this one. Help, help, help her out. Comma. <laughs> uh, and be patient with yourself while you develop a fluency at, at identifying this. It's, yeah. You get better. Um, that, that, that's all the questions we have. Uh, we, we've gone through all the questions. This is our first Q&A episode where we answered all of the questions. Every single question? 
every single question and we answered them and we answered them sufficiently didn't we i don't know probably not probably not probably not um i do have one last question for you guys well, now you're asking the questions well yeah i've got a question i mean we're on here and we didn't get to talk very much today so that's a question um do you think uh do you think that there are theological issues in the church that the covid like the, the, the COVID crisis is revealing? Like, do you think that there are, like, is there something that you're seeing in terms of either unique questions, unique opportunities, unique needs? Is there something that's happening right now in the current crisis that you're like, oh, that, that is showing that either the church is stronger in this area or more well-equipped in this area than we thought, uh, or that like, no, we need to do some constructive work here and we're lacking some of the proper lenses to understand something or like, have you felt any of that? We're like, wow, that surprises me. Right? Like that, that part of the church is particularly resilient or wow, we really have some work to do. And I'm talking specifically about our setting, global West Christianity. That's what we can address. Is there anything that you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be hard to know, like we're going to have to do some pretty deep dives a year from now and then five years from now and 10 years from now, we are in the middle of a storm right now and to do a lot of prognosticating when you're in the storm is probably not super wise but but a few things i would offer first uh two two categories first is what it means to be a human an image bearer that and how we interact with other people in embodied ways so one of my fears going into this was oh man the church is just going to go virtual people are going to love it and they're going to want it to stay that way and that's not happening uh, that might happen to some, but overwhelmingly, churches are going lo more local. So like, for example, uh, just candidly, one of my fears being a pastor at the village was the village is going to become a church of 100,000 people online. And people are not going to watch their local churches uh, because they can now listen to Matt or whoever's preaching here. And we don't want that at the village. We want to serve you. Like if, if we can help your discipleship, great, but don't, don't think of us as your pastors. And people have gone more local and have an expectancy to be more embodied in the future. And I'm really excited about that. And I think the second is ecclesiology. I think this is pointing out that we have some really wonky ecclesiology in some parts of evangelicalism that we're going to need to shore up in the future. Can you uh, explain for those of us who may not know what ecclesiology is? Doctrine of the church. So what does it mean to be, to be a local church, to administer things like the sacraments, to worship together, how to, uh, to be an elder, to, to pastor and shepherd and govern people? It's, right now we've realized we actually aren't doing a lot of that in the local church already. And so it's going to be important for us. And I think we're realizing it right now. And we'll be able to, we'll be able to, I don't know if we will, get back to more biblically based uh, doctrine of the church after this. Yeah, I'm really trying to be fastidious about staying away from hot takes. Yeah. Uh, but what, I, what I'm hearing consistently, um, I'm hearing from, I, I typically hear from people who have read stuff like, oh, this was really encouraging to me, you know, stuff that I've written. And what I'm starting to hear is a lot of chatter about the incommunicable attributes of God. Mm -hmm. Um, that in this particular moment, there is a renewed awareness of, of um, that we need a God who transcends our categories. 
And so I don't know what I'm curious about is whether that will be the work of a moment or whether it will have staying power. Um, I, I'm really curious how long whatever lesson we think might be drawn right now is going to stick if things start to get back to normal. Yeah. Praying that, I'm praying that there will be long-term effects. And one of the effects that I'm praying will be long-term is a renewed desire to remember the God who sits in throne between the cherubim. I was thinking about um, in Isaiah 40, the passage that talks about um, uh, look up to the heavens, you know, he calls them out uh, every night and, um, and, and not one of them is missing about the, the star and how um, the commonality of this experience uh, means that even as all of us are thrown into uncertainty, we all of us, the unbeliever and the believer, can walk out of our doors and look up and see the same stars at night. Um, so I'm hoping that we're in this, there will be a deeper and more ingrained awareness of the transcendence of God. We may not feel warm and snuggling right now, um, but we can feel held by the God of the universe who controls all things. Yeah, no, I think those are both really helpful. Yeah, and I, and, I, and, I, and I'm glad. I, the goal of the question wasn't hot takes. It was more of just trying to pause and, pause and kind of t- uh, take stock. I, I do think one of the things that I've been really encouraged by was it felt, um, I don't know if this is just me not having like a well-developed view of what's happened in the decades, like before I was kind of a, um, a meaningful and active part of the life of the church. But it felt like because of some maybe recent emphases and push from a publishing perspective and just from teaching that there is more lament infrastructure in place than there may have been 10 years ago. And it just feels like people are more comfortable talking about that. And I think that has been something that I've been really encouraged by is that uh, there has been a real willingness for the church to enter in and for the people of God to really grieve broken things and to not have to gloss over some of the hardships. I think the internet and the digital age just created, has created so much access to the brokenness of the world that we just had to learn how to limit because prior to that we had been insulated from it, just was shielded from our view. But because that walls come down over the last 20 years, we've we've had to learn how to deal with that. And I think that the church built out some things and started preparing their people. And I, I feel like even among the people that I pastor, there is a, they have a stronger sensibility about the value of that and the opportunity about God inviting them in to just say, I'm grieved by this and it's a grievous thing. Um, and so I, I think that's something that's been really encouraging to me um, that I, I don't know would have been true uh, of the church 25 years ago um so well this is our season finale and uh hopefully it delivered on the goods we're glad if you joined us for you got frozen with a scowl face yeah we did we're all wearing black tonight i know <laughs> the funeral <laughs> yeah. 
in celebration of Resurrection Sunday and the last episode of the season. Um, so if you tuned in, thank you for tuning in. Really glad that you jumped on. I know that if you're listening to this, you might be thinking, oh, there's not going to be more Knowing Faith episodes. But that's actually not true because if you're watching it live, you're watching the recording of the season finale. But this won't actually release until the end of May. And we have got some great episodes uh, that haven't even been, even been released yet um, with some incredible guests. Like I think the Jeremy Treat episode hasn't released yet. Yeah. The, uh, the Greg Al, the most recent Greg Sam Alberry. The Sam Alberry. I mean, we've got some guests on some episodes that have not released yet that are fantastic. Hey, uh, I was wondering if you guys liked the episode that we did with Greg Allison. I love the episode we did with Greg Allison. He's a holy yeah, and humble. Why are you asking that? He's trying to bait us because he knows Allison agreed with him on the indwelling of the Holy oh, Spirit. My we're not going to do it, dude. We're just not going to go there, bro. I was just saying, you were outed by, a world, by two world-class theologians. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> we are really glad that you tuned in. See you next time. Grace and peace. <laughs>